Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington, your host this evening on the Gist of Freedom. And tonight we will continue our reading of the book by William Steele, The Underground Railroad. And um, the title tonight is Breaking the Chains. Joining me is uh, Dr. Katz. Uh, Excuse me on that. That is not the Underground Railroad. Breaking the Chains is what we'll be uh, discussing this evening, listening to and discussing. And uh, Dr. Katz will be joining me. Are you there, Dr. Katz? Yes, I am. Glad to have you here tonight. Glad to be back with you, Preston. Right. And uh, we will be getting to that book shortly, or to the reading here shortly. And uh, Dr. Katz, why don't you uh, introduce the preface for us to this, what we're going to hear sure. tonight. This is a book called Breaking the Chains, African-American Slave Resistance which I wrote in response to my work and all of my research on slavery and finding that the whole story of resistance was left out. And the preface that we're now going to hear being read by actor Peter Francis James, who has recorded such famous books as The Bible, Native Son, and Black Boy by Richard Wright, and so on, uh, talks to the origin of the book and the importance of the issue of slave resistance. So maybe we should get right into that preface now. Recorded Books Incorporated presents an unabridged recording of Breaking the Chains, African-American Slave Resistance by William Lauren Katz, narrated by Peter Francis James. Introduction Heroic men and women crowd the pages of U.S. history and punctuate its major events. Defiant Minutemen at Concord Bridge, brave pioneers plunging into the wilderness, intrepid Marines at Wake Island refusing to surrender, daring astronauts. Africans who arrived here on slave ships have not been part of this glorious heritage. When American courage is celebrated, slaves are left out. The story of their heroism has not often been told because history was recorded by those who sold, owned, or profited from their labor. To justify their profits from bondage, masters invented useful tales. They insisted Africans were an inferior breed who benefited from the culture of their European and Christian owners. Vice President John C. Calhoun, a famous South Carolina master, said bondage made Africans so civilized and so improved, not only physically, but morally and intellectually. To excuse kidnapping Africans from their families and homeland, Virginia planter George Fitzhugh insisted slaves love their master and his family, and the attachment is reciprocated. Fitzhugh and Calhoun claimed Africans in slavery not only enjoyed hard work in the hot sun, but were happier than any other laborers in the world. To justify enslavement, masters bent history, truth, and the Bible to their purposes. 
They also created their own scientific evidence. Dr. Samuel Cartwright of the University of Louisiana said blacks consume less oxygen than the white, and this fact thus makes it a mercy and a blessing to Negroes to have persons in authority set over them to provide and take care of them. Central to the slaveholders' reasoning was the lie that Africans willingly accepted slavery and rejected rebellion. Dr. Cartwright claimed there had never been an insurrection against slaveholder rule. When slaves tried to escape, the doctor called it draptomania, or the disease causing Negroes to run away. When blacks rebelled, sabotaged production, and fought white masters and overseers, it was dysthesia ethiopica, a mental disorder peculiar to Africans. The lies of slaveholders did not die quickly or easily. In 1863, after thousands of blacks had fled plantations to fight for liberty in the Civil War, Confederate President Jefferson Davis still called slaves peaceful and contented laborers. The Civil War ended slavery, but scholars and textbook writers carried on the planter's view of the happy, dull, docile slave. An ex-Confederate soldier, John W. Burgess, became a noted historian at Columbia University. He influenced generations of scholars with his views that African Americans were inferior to whites and content under slavery. Thus, the slave owner's version of slave life had a lasting impact on historians from the North and South. Scholar William E. Woodward wrote that African Americans were the only people in history emancipated without any effort of their own. And two of this country's most liberal and famous historians, Alan Nevins and Henry Steele Commager, wrote college texts that emphasized slaves were attached to their masters, well cared for, and apparently happy. The story of Dred Scott illustrates the way slaves were presented as pathetic stereotypes. Because of the Supreme Court case that bears his name, Scott has always been the one black figure in U.S. history courses. But little is said about him as a person, that he saw his first wife and two children sold away, that he married Harriet, and they had two children, Eliza and Lizzie, whom he desperately wanted to live in freedom. Historians wrote about a Dred Scott who was lazy and shiftless. Some even ridiculed him as a carefree, stupid man with no real interest in freedom. In American Heritage, famous Civil War historian Bruce Catton said Scott was a man without energy and attributed to Scott such words as his case was a heap of trouble and he was amazed at all de fuss they made dar in Washington. In fact, Scott shouldered huge burdens to lift slavery from his family. For a time, he escaped to the Lucas Swamps outside St. Louis, a haven for slave runaways. Then he was recaptured and brought back. After that, he mainly spent time working at extra jobs, raising cash to purchase his family's liberty. When his owner, Mrs. Emerson, turned down the $300 he had saved, Scott hired a lawyer and brought his case before Judge Crum in St. Louis. Despite rapidly deteriorating health and the onset of old age, Scott pursued this legal effort for 10 years and 10 months. Along the way, he received some financial help from anti-slavery whites. Though the Supreme Court ruled against the Scots, a new master soon freed them. The Scots worked in St. Louis, dread as a porter at Barnum's Hotel, and Harriet running a laundry business, with Dredd helping her out after hours. The real Scott story turns out to be one of courage and endurance by a family committed to liberty. But they never really had their day in court, because they faced an all-white Supreme Court stacked against them. Then later scholars emphasized this distorted, stereotyped image. Such fantasies about slaves 
reached generations of teachers, textbook authors, and Hollywood writers. Their words and images penetrated millions of young U.S. minds. The 7th and 8th graders who entered my New York City classroom in the 1950s knew their slavery lessons cold. Slaves didn't really mind it, said one, because it wasn't so bad. If they didn't like it, they would have revolted, said another. Slavery was really like a kind of social security, said a third. No one seemed to disagree with these views that they had been taught in elementary school. To those reared on this version, it seemed un-American to depict the evils of slavery and disloyal to talk about African-American people fighting for freedom against whites. Omitting, neglecting, or suppressing the facts of slave defiance became a lasting American tradition. The truth about bondage was always available. Before the Emancipation Proclamation, slave men and women escaped and wrote more than a hundred autobiographies and published 17 newspapers. Anti-slavery or abolitionist publications of the 19th century bulge with black and white testimony exposing the evils of bondage. 6,000 pages of the recollections of ex-slaves are on file at the Library of Congress, and hundreds of other interviews are kept at Fisk University. Most scholars have ignored this mountain of evidence. Some flatly said that while those who profited from slavery could be objective, those who suffered from it lacked powers of observation or sufficient detachment to judge fairly. Slave testimony reveals a heritage of rebelliousness stretching from the kidnappings in Africa to the end of the Civil War. And this American story adds a proud new dimension to the world's struggle for freedom. Africans demonstrated endurance, resilience, and bravery in the face of the most wretched conditions in the New World. They were among the first Americans to die for the great ideal that all are created free and equal. Today, the story of slave resistance can be described with a high degree of accuracy through accounts left by the men, women, and children held in bondage and their relatives and friends. I have chosen to construct this book largely based on their testimony, and I have also included the recollections of white slaveholders and their families, foreign visitors, military and government reports, newspapers, and legal records. Because this book is short and focuses on the black contribution to emancipation, white participation, since it appears in many other books, is indicated but not fully examined. It was the resistance of the slaves that each step of the way galvanized whites and free blacks into action. All quotations are by blacks, slave or free, unless otherwise identified. Some African-American narrators, such as Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, have recently found their place in school courses. But other witnesses are largely unknown. Some left scant identification in the historical record, except a few words and a first or last name. Others left even less, a nickname, a state, a date. In telling their stories, some did not wish to give their name. More often, the man or woman who took down their words did not bother to ask for one. I have included whatever information is known of these people, whose surviving words bear witness to our common history. William Lauren Katz Should I take it from there? Are you there, Dr. Katz? Yes, I am. I can take it from there if you want me to. Okay. And, uh, well, I had a question before you start. Um, sure. The, uh, the, uh, I heard in the account there that there were slave narratives available or at this university. And I wonder if those have been, are they, uh, are they accessible? Yes. I think you have to make appointment, you know, uh, to see them. Uh, oh, you know that uh, because they may now have them 
you know, in digitalized form, you know, so you're not touching the, the original pages that might crumble. I see. And uh, now what is your uh, contact information? And before that, I'd like to let people know that they can reach us at 949-270-5957. Well, uh, people might want to consult my website, which is williamlcats.com, and Katz is K-A-T-Z. And I have a number of essays for free up there, including pictures on the whole topic of slave resistance and uh, and topics covered by this book, and particularly by my uh, more well-known book, Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage. That's williamlcats.com. Okay. Now, you were going to talk to us, man, about Chapter 4 of your book. Okay. What we're going to do at this point is continue on with the reading of one of the chapters by Peter Francis James, who just read the introduction. And Chapter 4 is called Disrupting Plantation Life. And it's a story of, of slave resistance, which i just like to point out, because we're skipping a few chapters here that we can come back to in future broadcast, that slave resistance by Africans began in the age of Columbus as soon as they were brought in. In 1502, they were brought in, and by the end of 1502, they had escaped from Hispaniola, that's today's Haiti, Dominican Republic, and fled to Native Americans. And uh, Governor Ovando complains that they, and this is a direct quote, never can be captured. Now, in those few words, he's indicating <laughs> that there are freedom fighters out there. And the freedom fighters, by the way, are of two races. They're of African and they're of Native American descent. Because Native Americans, by the way, were the first people enslaved. And so Africans and Native Americans are enslaved together and they're fighting together because they've realized they have a common enemy. So if we're ready, I think we should go to the reading of that chapter now by uh, the actor Peter Francis James from Breaking the Chains. Breaking the Chains, Cassette 2. Chapter 4, Disrupting Plantation Life. On St. Helena Island, there is a folk tale of a slave who never had to work. He convinced his master he was disabled, and then sat around strumming his guitar and singing, I was fooling my master 72 years, and I'm fooling him now. Master and slave shared the same land, but not the same values, or even the same sense of humor. One exasperated slaveholder said, I'm nearly worried to death with them. If I had a jail, I should lock them up every night. Plantation owners and overseers found their working days were an unending battle of wits. Despite whips, guns, and unlimited power, they did not always win. John W. Brown complained his slaves have wearied out all the patience I had with them now for nine years. Even nightfall did not bring relaxation and sleep. A visitor to the South reported, I have known times here when not a single planter had a calm night's rest. They never lie down to sleep without loaded pistols at their sides. Frederick Douglass believed both owner and slave were victims of the system. He said, Reason is imprisoned here, and passions run wild. Douglass's cousin an attractive young woman was sexually abused by Plummer, her overseer. When she protested to her owner, known for his kindness, he beat her. Douglas coldly concluded, The treatment was part of the system rather than part of the man. To have encouraged appeals of this kind would have occasioned much loss of time and leave the overseer powerless to enforce obedience. The leather whip singing in the air, bringing blood from a black back, was the usual answer to any resistance, real or imagined. 
Howard C. Bruce, who escaped to write a book about his adventures, said slaves took no interest in their master's work and went no further than forced by the lash. I find Robert a very hard hand to manage, said Senator John Hammond. I have flogged him until I'm tired. Senator Alexander Stevens jailed his slave, Pierce. But his overseer reported his imprisonment had only tended to harden him. I don't think he will ever conform. John's owner had the young slave heavily ironed and put to work, but had given up all hope of ever being able to make him an honest and obedient boy. Whipping does no good, and advice is nearly thrown away. To keep control, owners tried hard to divide their laborers. They taught us to be against one another, and no matter where you would go, you would always find one that would tattle and have the white folks pecking on you, recalled a slave woman. Planter Knott offered five dollars for those willing to betray their people, saying, I always like to encourage Negroes in betraying runaways. House servants were treated better than field hands, light-skinned individuals better than dark, and women better than men, in the hope favored individuals would pass on news heard in the slave quarter. African-American communities had to learn to screen out unreliable members and to deal with informers. Robust black men were selected as drivers and given whip power over field hands. If they failed to carry out orders, they were flogged. Solomon Northup, a Louisiana driver for eight years, devised a clever response. He threw the lash within a hair's breadth of the back of the ear or the nose without, however, touching either of them. When overseers appeared, Northup's laborers helped in the drama with a squirm and screech as if in agony. Patrols, or paddy rollers, as they were called by the African-American community, roamed the countryside at night. They checked to be sure slaves were in their houses and to see if those who were out had passes from a white person. They were known for savage brutality, particularly when they encountered groups of slaves at secret religious or other meetings. Black people tried to avoid them and sometimes set traps for their horses or burned their homes. Since their labor was stolen, slaves justified and counted as a form of resistance stealing from slaveholders. A woman found with her mistress's trinket said, don't say I'm wicked. It's all right for us poor colored people to appropriate whatever of the white folks blessings the Lord puts in our way. Planter Thomas Chaplin complained of my little rascal William who I had minding the crows off the watermelons. But William had been the worst crow himself and does the thing quite systematically, cunning, very. In the field, black women and men found a variety of ways of fooling whites or disturbing production. Reporter Olmsted observed what whites called eye service, work performed only when slaves were watched. Against strict orders, Gates were left open and bars let down, rails removed from fences, mules injured, tools broken. Everywhere was careless workmanship, boats left to drift away, heavy items moved, dangerous embankment holes not filled but thinly patched on top. Workers failed to perform jobs and then lied. One owner told Olmsted, slaves never did a fair day's work. They could not be made to work hard. They never would lay out their strength freely, and it was impossible to make them do it. Planters also found that almost anything used in production could be ruined. There were mysteriously bent hoes, broken plows, toothless rakes, and injured field animals. Howard Bruce told how slaves deliberately overworked field animals and plowed too shallow for planting of crops. Slave sabotage was so widespread that planters invented a thick slave hoe that could not easily be broken. Many planters feared to introduce the plow. Mules, 
harder to injure than horses, were often used. Production on some plantations varied as much as 100% due to slowdowns and sabotage. Slaves pretended to be too sick or lame to work. Women pretended they were pregnant, and illness soared when work was hardest. In Mississippi, the Wheels Plantation calculated one working day each week was lost by sickness. The Bowles Plantation found that of 159 days lost due to sickness, only five were on Sunday, a day of rest. One planter found that a man he considered too blind to work in the field made 18 good crops for himself when the Civil War was over. Strikes, slowdowns, or what owners called the danger of a general stampede to the swamp were common. One manager told reporter Olmsted, slaves ran away to protest overseers and harsh working conditions. They hide in the swamp and come into the cabins at night to get food. Some lengthy stoppages were only settled when owners agreed to negotiate with their slaves. A few slaves devised a special revenge on owners during a sale or auction. Pretending to be sick, insane, or disabled, their stumbling or incoherent manner wrecked sales, drove away buyers, or brought lower prices. One light-skinned slave claimed to have escaped during negotiations for his sale. He said he talked faster than his darker-skinned master and sold the white man instead. With the cash, he made his way north. Overseers, often known for their abusiveness, did not have a happy time, and some had to fight for their lives. In rural Alabama, Olmsted was told, the overseers have to always go about armed. Their life wouldn't be safe if they didn't. As it is, they very often get cut pretty bad. Cudjo Lewis was busy working in the field when he saw a group of women overpower and soundly thrash an overseer who had insulted one of them. In 1853, one Alabama overseer was wounded when slaves rebelled. He finally put down the uprising, but since little blood was shed and no lives were lost, he only imposed a token punishment on the rebels. Though direct challenges to work rules could be suicidal, some slaves spoke up. Beverly Jones recalled Jake, who told his Virginia master, You can sell me? Lash me or kill me. I ain't caring which, but you can't make me work no more. The owner thought for a moment and said, All right, Jake, I'm retiring you, but for God's sake, don't say anything to the other niggas. At times, slowdowns or protests forced changes. Masters might fire overseers in constant combat with their workers, especially if production fell. Some agreed to compromise with their slaves, one promising his overseer would ask nothing unreasonable from them. A Virginia master found his overseer lacks authority among the Negroes to make up for which he is very industrious and works with them. Frederick Douglass learned early that the slave whipped easiest is whipped most. Sent to a slave breaker named Edward Covey, who tried to beat him into submission. Young Douglas finally lost his temper. A fighting madness had come upon me, and he found himself in a dangerous wrestling match. I was strictly on the defensive, preventing him from injuring me rather than trying to injure him. I flung him on the ground several times. I held him firmly by the throat that his blood followed my nails. Douglas clobbered a cousin of Covey who rushed to the rescue and warned away a hired man and a slave woman Covey had called. Douglas battled Covey for two hours until the slave breaker gave up. Covey announced he whipped Douglas, but never bothered him again. A somewhat less hazardous form of resistance, fire, began early and burned late throughout the slave era. Arson was a quick, powerful form of retribution, which could be used selectively and could leave enough time for those with the matches 
to flee. On the Pierce Butler plantation, Fanny Kemble reported field hands made fires to cook their meals, and sometimes through their careless neglect, but sometimes too, undoubtedly on purpose, the woods are set fire to. Fires are continually occurring in this country, reported a visitor to Georgia. From colonial times, whites claimed slaves were busy setting fires. In 1741, two Hackensack, New Jersey slaves were executed for starting fires. In 1766, a Maryland woman was executed for burning down her master's home, tobacco house, and outbuildings. In 1781, a Virginia resident wrote of most alarming times this summer as blacks burned homes. By the 1790s, Charleston citizens organized to see if brick and stone, instead of wood, could be used for building homes. By the next century, most Virginia homes had fire escapes, and visitor Morris Birkbeck noted, many whites have an extraordinary fear of fires due to the carelessness of the Negroes. The turmoil during the War of 1812 led to new opportunities for arsonists. The Norfolk Herald reported four Negroes in the jail committed as incendiaries. It wrote, the danger to be apprehended to our town from an attack of the enemy is safety to what it is to be apprehended from the lurking incendiary. By 1820, the American Fire Insurance Company of Philadelphia announced it declined making insurances in any of the slave states. In 1831, Richmond businesses feared goods destroyed by fire would not be paid by insurers. Some arsonists struck at hated patty rollers. In 1830, a southern report said some patty rollers had quit, and other patrols are of no service after two had their dwelling houses and other houses burnt down. In 1852, Princess Anne County, Virginia, Patrollers who had just dispersed a black meeting suddenly had to race from one blazing paddy roller home to another. If fire was a favorite general terror weapon, poison was the favorite lethal choice against individuals. Women, especially those who were nurses and cooks with easy access to medical supplies, were often charged in poison plots. Some were accused of bringing a knowledge of lethal formulas from Africa. In 1740, New York City's 2,000 African Americans were accused of trying to poison the water supply for 10,000 whites. Whites who could afford it bought spring water from vendors. In 1751, South Carolina demanded the death penalty for blacks who poisoned whites and for any black who instructed another black in the knowledge of any poisonous root, plant, herb, or other poison. Ten years later, the Charleston Gazette announced, the Negroes have again begun the hellish practice of poisoning. In 1755, Maryland convicted five slaves and Virginia two slaves for conspiring to poison whites. By 1770, Georgia provided a death penalty, saying poisoning has frequently been committed by slaves. In 1805, when two respected whites were poisoned, a conspiracy charge was brought against 19 black men and one woman in three North Carolina counties. Other women also joined men in plantation resistance. In December 1774, the Georgia Gazette reported four slave women and four men on a rampage, killed an overseer in the field, murdered his wife, and dangerously wounded a carpenter. In 1822, owner Levin Adams described a slim six-foot runaway. Sarah is the biggest devil that ever lived, having poisoned a stud horse and set a stable on fire also burnt G.R. Williams' stable and stockyards with seven horses and other property to the value of $1,500. She was handcuffed and got away at Ruddles Mills on her way down the river, which is the fifth time she escaped. 
From colonial times on, many planters complained their slaves were running amok. This often meant that white control had broken down. In 1773, Robin, on the Carter Plantation in Virginia, not only ran away, but was destroying corn in the field. One master wrote about how he had narrowly escaped being murdered by two of his most trusty Negroes, and a paper reported William Allen of Charleston was chopped to pieces in his barn. Louisiana whites felt matters were getting out of hand in 1850. One report told of a slave who broke open and robbed Mrs. Black's house and was very insolent to her. At the Magruder plantation, slaves rode into the yard on horseback, baked biscuits in the main house, took a bundle of bread, and went back home to bed. Favorite servants in the main house showed a gritty impudence. Alcee, a talented cook on the Smeeds, Mississippi plantation, wanted to transfer to the fields. According to Susan Dabney Smeeds, Alcee systematically disobeyed orders and stole or destroyed the greater part of the provisions given to her for the table. No special notice was taken, so she resolved to show more plainly that she was tired of the kitchen. Instead of getting the chickens for dinner from the coop, as usual, she unearthed from some corner an old hen that had been sitting for weeks, and, when company was invited to dinner, served her up as a fricassee. The next day, she was allowed to march off to the field. Robert Falls, who felt badly about always having to scrape and bow before his master, swore, if I had my life to live over, I would die fighting rather than be a slave again. His father, he recalled, was a fighter. He was mean as a bear. He was so bad to fight and so troublesome, he was sold four times to my knowing and maybe a heap more times. In the father and son in the Falls family can be seen two very different responses to bondage and the fearsome price resistors paid for their courage. During the Civil War, as slaves deserted the plantation, one South Carolina planter realized their true feelings. We are all laboring under a delusion. I believed that these people were content, happy, and attached to their masters. But events and recollection have caused me to change these opinions. If they were content, happy, and attached to their masters, why did they desert him in the moment of his need and flock to an enemy whom they did not know and thus left their perhaps really good masters whom they did know from infancy? To planter Frederick A. Eustace, the realization came when he returned a year after the war to his home on the Georgia Sea Islands. He found his ex-slaves at work. I never knew during 40 years of plantation life so little sickness. Formerly, every man had fever of some kind, and now the veriest old cripple who did nothing under secesh rule will row a boat three nights in succession to Edisto Island or will pick up the corn about the corn house. There are 20 people whom I know who were considered worn out and too old to work under the slave system who are now working cotton as well as their two acres of provision and their crops look very well. Shamming, said one owner, slaves are famous for it. But many masters, such as Eustace, learned of their deception too late. Okay, um, that concludes the reading. We have a caller on the line for Harry Code 201. Are you still there, caller? Uh, yes, I am. I uh, basically um, called in because I wasn't able to access on the website, and I just kind of wanted to hear um, the presentation. 
Okay. And I, but I don't have a question. I do not need to ask you. Am I doing something wrong? Because when you go into the website um, and you go to stream it live, it's not coming up. So I don't know basically you know what's wrong. But I wanted to kind of hear the presentation. Okay. Do you have anything you'd like to share with us on what you've heard? Um, well, actually, I was doing some work here. But um, I basically, uh, like I said, I was interested in in the presentation. Um, I'm actually from New Jersey, and I've been I've like, been following the, the Leslie Gist. I guess it's out of Philadelphia. And like I said, I'm very interested in a lot of what's going on. So, And I, and I, and I intend to um, do a little more research on some of the things that you talked about. Thank you. Thank, thank you. I think that's a very good response to the material. We hope that uh, this kind of material will stimulate people to do their own reading and research. <clears throat> and, and let me just point out that uh, what you heard was both the, uh, the introduction and one of the uh, 13 chapters. And it was a chapter on resistance to bondage on the plantations. And uh, it does not cover a lot of other material that's in the book. For example, the next chapter is on the resistance of slaves who worked in towns. There's an entire chapter on slave revolts during the era of the American Revolution. And then on famous slave rebels of the 19th century. And another whole chapter on the abolitionists, white and black, who fought the system any way they could. There's even a chapter on runaways and the dangers of running away, how often it occurred, and the kind of maroon colonies that people of color set up once they ran away so they would not have to return. And some of them were, had colonies so strong they could fight off uh, slave catchers and planters and uh, keep their freedom and keep their families. And the book also has, and, and the uh, the tapings that you'll be hearing, have three chapters devoted to the Civil War, showing how people who were enslaved nevertheless played a leading role in the Civil War and in their own emancipation before Abraham Lincoln got around to signing an Emancipation Proclamation. That's a very important part of our history that's been left out. And finally, also how they then took up guns under uh, the Union Army, and fought against the Confederacy in battle after battle, more than 200,000 black men serving in the Union Army and Navy, Many, a number of them winning the Congressional Medal of Honor, first time was offered, uh, black women and children helping about the camps uh, that were formed by soldiers, uh, helping in every way, and even escaped slaves helping Union soldiers who were caught behind Confederate lines or escaped from Confederate prisons reached freedom, reached uh, back to their own lines so they could continue fighting the Confederacy. So what I'm getting at is what I've done here in the book, in these readings, is to construct the whole story of slave resistance going back, as I said, to 1502 all the way up into the Civil War and showing how the struggle for liberation, the struggle for emancipation, was fought by the slaves themselves, attracted the support of others, white people who had a conscience, uh, people of color who had freed themselves, purchased their freedom one way or another, and then they all together continued to push for emancipation and uh, turned the Civil War not into just a fight for the Union, which would, was what Abraham Lincoln wanted and pursued, but a fight that led to American freedom. So what the book is, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the book and these a series of tapings show is that here is the story of our first freedom fighters. Although enslaved, they found ways to resist in every way they could, no matter where they were and to try to get their freedom, and to try to extend freedom in the United States, even when a lot of white people were reluctant to do that. And uh, if you're interested, I'm sure 
that we can uh, get some other readings that are done from this book by the actor Peter Francis James, who does this excellent job of reading the chapters. I'll be happy to answer uh, any other questions. Okay, I do have one question. Um, sometimes I attend the Brett Forum, basically, and they really kind of speak about a lot of things that they see kind of go on, basically, uh, I guess, in the Caribbean, and that's, that's, not, and that's something that I don't really hear a lot about. And my question was, in the Caribbean, when they basically had the ancestors, um, they weren't enslaved, they were indigenous servants because they taught them to read, right? Um, they gave them land. So when they worked off their time, like after five years, they were free, and not only did they get land, like the the adults got land, and so did the kids. My question is, when they basically brought them to the United States, I don't understand why they were treated so harshly because, you know, in the Caribbean they talked to, I mean, you know, they still had harsh treatment in certain parts of the Caribbean. But my whole point is, like, in certain islands, they taught them, you know, they taught them a skill. They taught them to read, and they became self-sufficient. So to me, it took away them wanting to leave. You know, not saying they got uh-huh. complacent, but, you know, they they were there, yeah. and, they you know, they said, okay, we're here. We have something to work towards. You know, we can read and write. We have a skill. Why is it that when they came here, we were treated so harshly? I don't understand that. Well, I, I think I can explain a, a part of that. First of all, you know, I'm, gl- I'm glad you emphasized that this didn't happen everywhere in the Caribbean because some slaves were treated very brutally Absolutely. in the Caribbean, you know, and were not given any chance to get their freedom. And here what pertained in the United States, we now know from all of the evidence that has come in over the decades, over the centuries, you might say, is that we probably had the harshest form of human bondage known in the world. It was a racial bondage that was shaped by a market capitalist system that's focus was on the highest profits. And since the focus was on the highest profit, there was no concern for the soul of the person being uh, savagely persecuted, it didn't matter as long as he ground out profits. And this is what largely pertained here. It pertained to some extent in South America. There there were, and, and we have to recognize this, under the uh, rule by Spain and Portugal, there were slaves who were worked to death in the gold mines, in the plantations, and so on, because there were, first of all, when you're enslaved, you have no protection. The master can do anything. He can be a person with really psychologically ill and can get away with, to put it very simply, with murder. And this was done both in North and South America. Although the on, on a very vast scale here in the Americas, there was practically no protection at any time for enslaved people. Religious uh, attendance or religious uh, ceremonies did not help them. Conversion to Christian religion did not help them, except in a few rare instances. When you have a profit-driven system, you have huge plantations. You often had absentee planters, so the whole operation was in charge of overseers, and they were paid by how much production was gotten out of the slaves, the chances for abuse were enormous, and that's why you have the system that you described. That's interesting. Uh, in the Caribbean, an individual could work off slavery after five years. Uh, can you talk to us about Antonio Johnson, who was the first indentured slave who was sentenced to chattel slavery? Yes. Uh, I believe he was in Virginia. And uh, and he was, I, th- I think what, what what the story was there, he had escaped with two other uh, servants who were white. We have to know that the, the slavery included indentured servitude. Uh, it began that way for Africans and for white people brought over from Europe. But eventually whites were allowed to uh, remain indentured servants and they could get off uh, usually after seven years. But what happened in the, in the case of, of Johnson was that it was decided by the white court uh, 
there that because he was an African, that he would be a slave for life. That, in other words, different rules would apply to people of African descent. Different uh, rules were um, reasons were given for that. Uh, some uh, kind of crazy uh, argument was made that the other people uh, were there uh, by land. They, but the Africans were brought in by sea. Well, that that wasn't true. A number of the Europeans, of course, came uh, by sea, and of course, Native Americans. Uh, were were there by land, but they were enslaved, and some of them uh, continued on into slavery. Of course, some of them were mixed with Africans. And there was a gentleman in uh, 1640 uh, by the name of Punch, who I believe has some um, connection to President Obama, uh, was an indentured service uh, servant and escaped from Virginia to Maryland. Mm-hmm. I think I've heard about that, but I don't know much about it. Okay. Uh, he escaped with uh, a gentleman by the name of John Punch. Uh, or Antonio Johnson. Did they? Did he escape with John Punch? Do you know? Or did Antonio ever escape after he was put into slavery? I don't. I don't know that particular story. Okay. <clears throat> The thing we we have to understand is that the rules were made at that time in colonial period by the white officials in charge, and the rules were made to benefit the slaveholders and the uh, governments that that ruled at the time, and they were not made in any way to be just or to be fair or to to act in a Christian way. I see. Um, Professor, would you give us your uh, contact information again, including your sure. website? Sure. My website is williamlcats.com, and uh, you can find out there about my 40 books, my, most of them on African-American history. I'm usually known particularly for my uh, book, Black Indians, which has just come out in a new expanded edition this last year called Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage. Uh, and Doctor, uh, Dr. Ken, yes? excuse me. We have another caller on the line. We'll come back sure. to that. Go ahead, caller. Are you on the line, caller? No, it may be me. I'm still here. I maybe it's the, I'm the same person. I'm, I'm just like listening because I can't get it on the website. Oh, can't get it. Okay, the website. Try www. BlackHistoryUniversity. dot com. Is university w- spelled out? Yes, everything's spelled out. www. period BlackHistoryUniversity. dot com. Okay, should let me go to that. To, yeah, I should be able to pick it up there. Oh, okay, I will. Thank you. Okay. Oh, by yeah. the way, it'll be on iTunes immediately after this show as well. Oh, okay. All righty. Thank you. My name is Jules Shears. Thank you. From New Jersey. Nice meeting you. Okay, thank you. Okay, Dr. Katz, you can continue with uh, your contact information, please. Yeah, I, uh, yes, at my website, WilliamLKatz.com, you can read about various of my uh, 40 books. Uh, you can read my essays. It's a, I think there's a way to tap in and, and order a book if you're interested, or you can look them up in the library. I'm I'm also been available. I've spoken at dozens and dozens of of universities and in a, and in Europe and in Africa as well as across the United States and television and so on. So I'm available for that kind. I give a PowerPoint talk on a number of my books at uh, particularly at colleges, museums and and so on. And I can even be contacted through my website People can find an email there. They want to post comments, and um, well, I, I don't know what else to say. But you know, that, I, I think you can find uh, your listeners can find out a lot of information. Uh, just the fact that they might be listening to this program, I suspect they would find a lot of information on my website that would be of interest to them. I think what might be of interest is some of those slave diseases. And I think one was mentioned in your preface, the Drake oh, yes. Tomato 
Trap, draptomania. Draptomania. Yeah, well, yeah. this is yeah. It's an indi- Let me, if I can speak about that for a moment. It's an indication yeah. when I stumbled on that that a noted a doctor, Cartwright of the University of Louisiana, in before the Civil War, could actually come up with two diseases that uh, he he described ascribed to slaves. Draptomania. I'll, I'll I'll give you his exact wording. Draptomania, or the disease causing Negroes to run away. That is the name, draptomania, or the, the, the disease causing Negroes to run away. It shows you the level of self-delusion that slave owners were willing to accept. And, uh, of course, Dr. Cartwright even went on, since he was a scientist, to say that blacks consume less oxygen than white people. And this, quote, makes it a mercy and a blessing to Negroes to have persons in authority set over them to provide and take care of them, unquote. That's how people justified it. And by the way, they tried to sell this line of reasoning of the inferiority of people of African descent, not only to white people, but to the black people themselves, saying this is your natural state, being a slave. You really couldn't take care of yourself, fend for yourself and your family if you became free. And that's how they justified their slave system decade after decade. And even as I as I quoted in uh, President Jefferson Davis of the Confederacy in the same preface to the book, uh, in the middle of the Civil War when slaves were escaping by the thousands running, volunteering for the Union Army, helping in any way they could to fight the slave system. President Jefferson Davis of the Confederacy described them as, quote, peaceful and contented laborers. That's the kind of bill of goods they sold to themselves and tried to sell to everybody else in the country, regardless of color. Did they use any Darwinism uh, along those lines and well, I, I think that the Darwinism uh, came in, in later. The survival of, of the fittest comes in after the Civil War, and uh, that that was used too, that they're inferior and superior people, and it's no use trying to raise up inferior people because they can't make it. So uh, this argument was used that even when slaves were emancipated, you really didn't have to do anything for them, and you might as well keep them in a form of near bondage, such as, such as the sharecropping system and the convict lease system and systems like that that essentially returned people back into into chains because the superior race was superior and the inferior race could not be made equal. That was the way the reasoning went. And let me ask you about uh, your the Lincoln Brigade, a picture history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You just said it's an expanded third edition? The, the Lincoln Brigade is of a different era. Uh, the book, by the way, uh, just came out this month in a brand new third edition. What the Lincoln Brigade refers to is a group of Americans, both black and white, who tried to stop Hitler and Mussolini in their tracks before World War II. They did that. Oh, okay. by by going off to Spain, where Hitler and Mussolini were helping a General Franco overthrow the elected Republican government of Spain in 1936. And they went over, they were joined by 40,000 other people from all over the world, from 52 countries, volunteers, men and women went over. People came from as far away as Japan and China, and uh, as, as close as France to try to uh, go over there. And the Americans, with 2,800 of them, 90 of them were of African-American descent. And one of them, Oliver Law, I have an essay about him on the Internet now, uh, was an African-American from Texas, a communist, and a, a leader of the unemployed in America during the Great Depression. And he went over to Spain, and because he had some military training, he achieved a state that he couldn't in the United States. He was made captain and then commander of the Abraham 
Lincoln Brigade. This is at the time when General Colin Powell was only three months old. Here was Oliver Law leading this band of brave Americans fighting fascism, trying to stop World War II back in 1936, 37, and 38. On the Juneteenth holiday coming up. and um... Yes, yesterday was the 75th anniversary of his uh, appointment as commander of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. He died leading his men into battle, as did most of the other uh, commanders uh, who were there in Spain of the uh, Lincoln Brigade. I mean, after all, they were fighting Hitler and Mussolini, thousands of their troops, very well equipped, and these were a amateurs. Uh, many of them uh, had more experience with uh, poetry and reading novels than they had with handling guns, but they wanted to do something to stop Hitler before it was too late. I have to report, sadly, that they failed. And we had World War II. We had a Holocaust. We had a tremendous world war that took millions and millions of lives and, and, and threatened freedom on every single continent. That book is also, you can read about that, I believe, on my website. Okay. And speaking of Lincoln, uh, with Juneteenth holiday coming up, do you have any comments on the fact that Lincoln issued thousands of reproduced emancipation proclamations which were read by the Union soldiers to the newly freed blacks? The, actually, the, the, the most famous pictures of the Emancipation Proclamation uh, show a black family, enslaved black family, down on their knees in a hut while a white Union soldier reads them this from this great proclamation. But that leaves out the whole backstory that the proclamation came about not because Lincoln wanted to free the slaves. Uh, he intended not to free the slaves. And instead, uh, it was their actions running to freedom, offering to serve in the Union Army and Navy, showing that every reason that they wanted to fight for freedom including a, a fellow named Robert Smalls, a slave a captain, stealing the Confederate gunboat he was put in charge of with his slave crew, sailing it out of Charleston Harbor, surrendering it to the Union fleet, and then being appointed a captain of the planter for the United States government and continuing in the war to, to fight for the Union and for freedom. This is the kind of, this all happened before the emancipation proclamation was part of the pressure on Lincoln that convinced him that his strongest arm in fighting against the Confederacy was behind enemy lives, lines, and it was dark, and it was ready to fight, and it was people of African descent. Wow, that was equivalent to Truman dropping the eight bomb, huh? <laughs> That's, it was something yeah. like that. came as a something big surprise because like the Civil War did not start out to free the slaves. Yeah. Okay. And uh, let's see. Yeah, that was published all over the country in newspapers. And, yes, um, and and the, and the slaves heard about it their own way. You know, they listened intently. Of course, their masters were talking about it and cursing about it. But as I said, the important thing to remember, and I and there are three chapters in the book Breaking the Chains, and in the audio book that if we may get around to, that tell that story of how the slaves changed the fight to save the Union and into the greatest fight for American liberty that we've ever known in America's largest war, the Civil War. And well, I want, I, yes? I'm sorry. No, I, I, I thought we were winding down, so I wanted to thank you for having me on. Oh, yes, uh, we are, and uh, I'm very grateful again. I apologize early on. I had the wrong notes out uh, for this particular broadcast this evening. Now, just before we go, uh, you mentioned that you uh, have speaking engagements. Do you have any coming up here in the immediate future? No, not not at this moment, but once again, on uh, my website has a place that lists my speaking engagements. Uh, okay, great. Both the most recent and those in the in the past. And that's William and I, I, I'm usually invited by universities and and museums, 
sometimes by community centers and then public schools. Okay. Uh, thanks again, Dr. Katz, uh, William L. Katz. We appreciate um, all that you do and uh, appreciate your coming on here again tonight, and I'm sure that we'll be getting together in the future. Well, thank you for having me on, Preston and Leslie, and I'm really happy to participate because the service that you carry on through your station is an important one. It gets the truth out. And the truth exactly. will not only make us free, but it will bring us together. Thank you. Exactly. Take care. And good night. Good night. All right.